Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. I want you to imagine right now a man who in the middle of his life is in good physical health and condition. Imagine, though, that as he's going through life, one day, out of the blue, not because of any obvious injury or anything like that, he begins to feel a pain in his leg. That pain is there. That pain exists. Imagine that it's kind of of the level where it's there. He's conscious of it constantly, but it doesn't stop him from doing anything. It's not debilitating, but he just keeps on going through life. Eventually. His doctor's office calls and says, hey, it's time to schedule your uh, annual visit. We want to check in on you, see if you're doing well. So he schedules his time. He comes in. They run the battery of normal tests that they would each year or every other year. And then his doctor comes in and is reviewing all of these tests. You know, hey, you, you look healthy. You know, you got this going on, that going on. You're, you're strong. You're healthy. As far as I can tell, you know, things are going great. And then the doctor maybe says something like this. Do you have any questions for me? And after saying that, the, this man, he then replies, well, actually I do. I'm glad to know that I'm in good health, but there's this one pain that I've been living with that I'm curious about. Can, can you help me with that? And of course, the doctor would be glad to hear about it and then begin going through the process of trying to figure out what this mystery pain that exists in his leg is all about. I think that that picture is what is happening to the audience that the author to the Hebrews is writing to at this point in his letter. Because they have thought about Jesus. They have wondered if Jesus is better than the old covenant system and Moses and angels and the law and the Passover and the sacrificial system and all of these things. And the author convincingly tells these Hebrew Christians, Jesus is better than all of those things. In fact, he fulfilled all of those things. And then he prescribes for them a life of endurance. He says, look, if you're going to make it marginalized in the society that you're living in as a believer and Christian, I want you to, chapter 10 and 11, commune with God, stir up and meet with one another, hold tight to your gospel confession, expect a little suffering for Christ, look forward to the great promised reward, and learn to live a life of faith. And that's what we've been looking at the last few weeks, how to live a life of faith. But imagine now the author asking his audience, do you have any last questions? Is there anything else that you'd like me to talk about? And I imagine a question going like this. What if we're going to suffer, if we're going to have to endure, if, if we're going to experience some persecution or marginalization for our Christian faith, what is God doing during our suffering? I think this is the, the question that the author is going to address in this passage. If I'm going to experience all of that, then what is God doing through all of that? In other words, every exhortation that he's given them up to this point bolstered them for a life of struggle without rescuing them from a life of struggle. 
And perhaps they're wondering, why is that? What is God doing with this struggle? He, as far as what we believe about him, has the power and the ability to just remove us from this pain. So what is God doing as we struggle through this life, as we endure this persecution. And maybe for us this morning, we can think about it in the realm of persecution, like the context dictates, but we can also think about it in the realm of just the difficulties, hardships, trials, and travails of life. Ever been through one? All right, so that's the question. What is God doing during our struggle? Now, the Bible gives a lot of answers to that question But here in this passage, what the author's going to focus on, and I'll give you a little spoiler of what he's going to say, the basic answer that he's going to give is that God is using our struggle, our trials, our difficulties to train us, to mature us, to grow us. That's what God is doing. And that will lead them to ask then a couple other questions. They'll ask, what good does God's training produce? In other words, what's it it doing in my life? How do I know that God's training works? And why should I submit myself or receive God's training. So we'll go through these four questions today, starting with this first one. What is God doing during my struggle? So let's start out in verse three. That's where we left off last week. We already read and studied the first two verses where he talks about Jesus and how he's the one that we should look at as we're going through this life of faith. But he continues to talk about Jesus in verse three by saying, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Right now, again, the question, what is God doing during my struggle? The first thing that the author wants to do is he wants to give his audience a little reality check about their struggle, lest they get too carried away with what they are. And he says, hey, hey, hold on a second. Yeah, you're struggling, but first think about Jesus. He endured suffering all the way to the point of death willingly, and he says, and you have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed. And sometimes this is just exactly the word that we need to receive when we're going through a little bit of struggle. Sometimes we just need to hear the Lord say, now hold up a second, it's actually not as bad as sometimes you're painting it out to be. Uh, You know, you, you might as you're going through life, maybe you're reading through your, your news feed or something like that, and you come across an article that is hostile to your Christianity. Or maybe you're sitting at home and you're doing like I do on Sunday nights and you're eating your big bowl of popcorn, you know, and you're doing your thing and you're watching one of your favorite shows and that inevitable character comes on the screen who goes on a diatribe against God in the middle of your, you know, show that you're watching. Or maybe an election happens and your constituency votes against your scriptural convictions 60 to 40 or something like that. And the temptation might be to read that article, watch that show, or see those election results and say to yourself, oh, I'm so persecuted for my Christianity. And the author just seems to want to say to these people and maybe to us as well, whoa, whoa, slow, slow your roll a little bit. It's not as bad as you might think. You know, there are people like Jesus and others who have followed him who have gotten to the point where they have shed their blood for their Christianity, but these Hebrew Christians, like so many of us, we're not quite at that level yet. So there's a little bit of just a reality check before we get into this big and ominous subject about the struggle and the suffering that we might endure in life. So let's go back to that question, though. What is God doing 
during my struggle? Well, the first part of the answer to that question is that God is loving his people, he is loving you as his child. Let's read it in verse five and following. He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And the author is gonna do what he always does. He quotes from the Old Testament, and here he quotes from Proverbs 3 and says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's the quote from Proverbs. And then he goes on to say in verse seven, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And in the, in the biblical era, when they said sons, they had the idea of sons and daughters. If we were writing it today, we'd say both, but they had the idea of both. He says, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, verse eight, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Notice some of the phrases that I just read to you in that paragraph. The discipline of the Lord. Being reproved by him, corrected by him. The fact that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and that he chastises every son whom he receives and that when he does that, he is treating his people as his children. Every one of those phrases drips with fatherly love from God toward his people. In other words, because of God's paternal care for us, he engages in our maturation process. You see, what the text is reminding us of is two things. The first thing many of us would confess to. The first thing is this. God has the right to tell his people what to do. <laughs> this is something that Christians should agree about, you know, that God has given to us his word. He is the authority. He has the right to tell us what to do. But here's the thing. God is not sitting back distant from us and saying, this is how I want you to live your life. No, what the, what the scripture is showing us here is that like a loving father, he is doing what he can to engage in the process of our maturation so that we can become what he has envisioned for us to become. Maybe a way to think about this might be to, maybe some of you, you've gone through um, You've had a physical trainer or like a like a you know some kind of sports therapist or a, a personal trainer who's helped you work out or something like that. And maybe some of you have had the experience of working out with someone on a video screen. You know, like they're doing their thing and you're supposed to follow along on the screen. They are two entirely different experiences. You see the person on the screen, they're telling you what to do. Like, come on, let's go, get down, do this, do that. They're telling you what to do, but if you want to, you could just stand there. If you want to, you could just sit on the couch and just watch them work out. But if you're there in the gym with a physical trainer, you know that's not how it works. They're in your face, they're helping you. One more, we could do this, you know, kind of thing. This is what he's telling us about the Lord. I don't want to put the wrong image of God in your mind, but what it's telling us is that God isn't just saying, hey, here's what maturity looks like, live it out. What he's saying to us is that our loving father is using the struggles of life to help train us, to help discipline us, to help get the very best out of our lives, to help us learn 
how to endure. And what he tells us is that this is an evidence that we are actually his children. The fact that he is interacting with us, messing with us, so to speak, is evidence that we belong to him. I remember when I was in sixth or seventh grade, there was this one day where a friend of mine, we were on break in the middle of you know classes, and he showed me that he had brought to school a package of firecrackers and strike anywhere matches. And he showed them to me, and then I asked the natural question, when are you going to light them? And he's like, oh, I don't think I should do it here at school. I'm like, why did you bring them then, you know? So I was like, give me one of each, you know? So he gave me a firecracker, he gave me a match, and the next period we were gonna have an earthquake drill, because that's what you do in California, you practice for earthquakes. And what they would do is they'd ring the bell, the teacher would say, ah, it's an earthquake, everybody get under your desk. So we were all under our desks, and I thought this would be the perfect moment, you know? <laughs> and so I lit my firecracker, I thought I was so smooth, you know, and I threw it out, and then, you know, the, everything, the teacher was all shocked, you know, this big explosion, and then we had to, you know, eventually they say it's all clear, you have to get up, you go out into the outside, and you're lined up with your class, you're kind of making sure everybody's there or whatever, and then we all went back inside, I thought, sweet. I got away with it. And my teacher pulled me aside and he said, hey, you need to go to the office. I'm like, why? He said, you lit a firecracker in class. And I was like, how did you know it was me? He's like, I saw your arm like coming out, you know, so obvious. So then I went to the office. I was terrified, you know, I thought, oh man, my parents are going to be so upset. So then I decided to tell this big lie, this big story. I heard about this guy, he's going to come throw a firecracker through the window, you know, like it definitely wasn't me. So eventually, you know, my dad comes to the office, and there's other kids that are in trouble for other stuff, and he does not pay any attention to them. I'm like, hey, notice them. There's others. <laughs> He got me, brought me home. I was suspended for a couple of days, and, and I got the pleasure of, we had this property of this area behind our home that was just filled with weeds, and he's like, you're gonna, for two days, take those out, you know, and that's the job that you've been given. You see, he wanted me to mature. He cared more, actually, about the fact that I'd lied than the fact that I lit a firecracker. He cared about both, but he wanted my maturity to come. And the fact that he interacted with me was evidence I belong to him. I am his child. And when God disciplines us in life, whether it's through the struggles of life that come from persecution, or whether it's because of things that we have done and the consequences that are attached to it, it is evidence that we belong to him. He is trying to build, what's the word in verse 7, endurance in us. So the first thing that we need to know is that he is loving us as his child. What is God doing during my struggle? He is loving you as his child. But secondly, you also need to know that he's producing something really good in you as he's doing that. Notice in verse 9, it says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. I've always felt a lot of grace in that line from the author. He's describing fathers. He's describing parents. He's saying, you know what they did? They disciplined us for a little while, a short time, as it seemed best to them. Doesn't, doesn't that sound a lot like parenting? Like, I try to figure out how to do it. I try to know how to do it. But at the end of the day, it's like, I'm doing the best I can. 
<laughs> I'm trying to make the best decisions, trying to do the best I can, but God, on the other hand, is always perfect in every decision he makes. It says in verse 10, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, God, what is he doing with our struggles? Well, he's trying to use those struggles to produce a fruit, the fruit of righteousness in our lives. In fact, you might even be able to put your finger on some of the lessons that God is trying to teach you specifically through some of the specific struggles that recur in your life. He's trying to develop you. He's trying to produce a maturity inside of you. A good example of this, I think, comes from the life of David in the Old Testament. You know, David, um, we're not quite there to the second question. David, he was anointed as the next king in Israel. As a young man, he went out then after being anointed to take care of his father's sheep. And one day a lion came, another day a bear came, and David was filled with the Spirit, and he went and killed the lion and the bear. And you know the story. Eventually, David brought some supplies to his three oldest brothers who were at the battle against the Philistines where Goliath had taunted Israel for 40 days and said, send me a man. We'll do representative warfare, me versus whoever you send. Nobody volunteered for 40 days in Israel's camp until David heard this Philistine and went to King Saul and volunteered himself to go out and fight. Saul said to him, you're a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. You have no business going out into war against this man. But then David said, when I was caring for my father's sheep, one day a lion came out, and one day a bear came out, and I rose up and struck them both so that they died. And so will this Philistine be in the hands of the Lord. You see, God had worked in David's past through difficulty and conflict to prepare him for the beautiful thing he was going to do in giving victory to the people of Israel. You see, God has things that he wants to do through your life. He has people that he wants you to be a ministry to, to be a blessing to. But so often, there's a preparatory work that he needs to accomplish so that he can get you ready for that greater fruit that's in the future. And so many times, that training or that maturing comes through the struggle that you will endure through life. Some of you probably saw this, but I think it was a few years ago, uh, uh, an admiral named William McCraven gave a graduation speech to the University of Texas, and it ended up going viral, and he ended up writing a little book uh, that expanded on some of those ideas. And in it, he told a story about a soldier who broke a long-standing record in a, an obstacle course that was part of their training. And the way that he broke this record that had stood for decades is that there was a, this part where you had to climb down a rope and no one in the history of the obstacle course had ever been bold enough to go down the rope head first. It was a very dangerous maneuver. But he did it on this one day and he shattered the record because he'd traveled in that way. 
And, and from that, this is what he said. He said, life is a struggle and the potential for failure is ever present. But those who live in fear of failure or hardship or embarrassment will never achieve their potential. Without pushing your limits, without occasionally sliding down the rope head first, without daring greatly, you will never know what is truly possible in your life. Now, I agree with that to an extent, but I think that believers have something even better than this. We have a God who helps us slide down the rope head first. We have a God who is saying to us, there is something in you that is yet untapped, and I'm going to help you through struggle get to that point. So what is God doing during my struggle? He is training me. He is developing me. He is maturing me. Okay, now for that second question. What good does God's training produce? What good does God's training produce? We already saw it's holiness, righteousness in general, but are there any specifics? Well, let's read on in the passage, starting in verse 12. It says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, this is one of those sentences in the Bible. It's like, what is that? talking about, lifting up my drooping hands, strengthening my weak knees, and that making straight paths for my feet. You know, what, what is that talking about? What does that mean? Well, this is one of the things that God produces in us through his training, is that we get to a point as we're going through struggle, we get to a point where we just say, you know, I'm not going to be depressed because I'm going through this hardship. I'm not going to be stuck because I'm going through this hardship. And listen to this. Sometimes our hardships and difficulties are a direct result of sins that we've committed previously or sometimes historically in our distant past. But the Lord is saying to us, look, I can use those consequences to develop you in your life, to make you more mature, stronger than you've ever been before. So get some resolve and move forward in it. Don't be depressed, don't just stop, don't just delay, but move forward with me. God is wanting us to be trained by these things. You see, the Bible teaches that we might suffer as Christians for our foolishness at times. We might stuff, suffer because of our stand for Jesus. We might suffer because of our current sins or our past sins or even just God's sovereign purpose in our lives. But however the struggle comes into our lives, what God is trying to produce is conviction, resolve, something in us that says, man, I'm just going to move forward in this. This is the way that life is. This is what God is doing. It's what he's producing in my life. What other option do I have? Am I going to be like a rebellious teenager that slams the door and says, I don't want you to tell me what to do? Or am I going to receive the instruction of God on my life and just submit myself to it? By the way, when I say rebellious teenager, I'm not meaning that if you're a teenager, you're rebellious. I see some of you in the house today. I don't think that of you, but some can be. And in those instances, we don't want to be like that. We want to submit ourselves to the fathering hand of God. All right, verse 14, let's read on together. So we, we learn here that God is producing resolve for life, but he's also producing peace with other people. He says in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Isn't that a beautiful concept? You know, that we as believers would strive with peace, strive for peace with everyone. The idea 
of course, is that it's not guaranteed that you'll get peace with everyone, but as much as is possible with us, without violating our convictions, we're to strive for peace with everyone, but he attaches something to that statement. He says, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The reason he's connecting those two things together is because one surefire way to destroy the peace that you might have with someone else is to treat them in an unholy way. And if you look at the verse, he says, without which no one will see the Lord, one surefire way to cloud someone's vision of who God is is to name the name of Christ yet live in an unholy way before them. You are getting in the way of the possibility of them seeing the beauty of the Lord. In other words, when we're nice, when we're peaceful, when we're kind, when we're trying to live in a holy way with others, it actually helps people see the Lord more clearly. So God is trying to produce in us peace with other people. But also, verse 15, he's trying to deal with the way that our hearts work. Notice it in verse 15. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, let me talk for a second about this root of bitterness. Sometimes the way we think about this is, hey, watch out for bitterness. It's, it's terrible. It kind of gets into your life, gets into your heart. It, it bears, you know, it gets rooted inside of you, and then you just don't know how it's going to come out. There will be anger and all these different things that, that come out of you when bitterness gets inside of you. And, and it is a constant battle for a believer, for believers to combat the potential of bitterness taking root in their hearts. You know, when you, someone sinned against you, when you need to repeatedly forgive someone for the same thing over and over again, or somebody does something against you that's so massive that it's just hard, you, you do forgive, but then it's like the next day you have to pray through forgiveness again. It is a struggle and a battle for us to maintain a heart that is not bitter, but we've got to get there. But here in this passage, I don't know that he's talking so much specifically about watching out for bitterness that gets inside of us, and here's why. When he talks about the root of bitterness, you might have noticed it in our English versions, we often put a quotation mark, a set of quotation marks around root of bitterness. And the reason for that is because it seems to be that he's lifting this quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses sat down with the people of Israel before he died, and they went into the promised land. And there he warned them to keep on walking with God. And look at what he said in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. He said, beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe, a whole tribe, think in this way, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant scripture, he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. In other words, it seems that what the author is saying, because he couples it with don't fall short of the grace of God or fail to obtain the grace of God, it seems that what the author is saying is, look, don't convince yourself, like Moses warned that previous generation, that 
you could just live however you want to live as a believer and that there won't be repercussions. No, God is looking at his people and saying, look, I want you to walk with me. I want you to obey me. It's going to go better for you in life if you let me parent you, if, if you let me father you. So I think in a sense, another thing that God produces uh, in us through this training is a clean and pure heart. He goes on to make it even more sober when he says in verse 16, so that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now here he refers to this Old Testament character named Esau. We referenced him a few weeks ago because he was brought up in Hebrews chapter 11. But just by way of reminder, Esau was the older brother of Jacob. They were twins. Esau was born a few minutes before Jacob was born. Jacob went on to have his name changed by God to Israel, where because he had 12 sons, they became the 12 heads of the eventual tribes of the nation of Israel. In other words, it was through Jacob that God's promise, God's line was placed. Esau was still blessed by God, but he was rejected from that first place. God had chosen to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac through Jacob, through Israel. But Esau, the Bible teaches, was a man of the flesh. He was an outdoors kind of guy, which there's nothing wrong with that, but there was a moment that came in his life where after a hunting trip, he came home and he was so hungry and he smelled his younger brother Jacob's stew that he'd been cooking. And he said to Jacob, you know, give me that stew lest I die. And it's just a real dramatic, you know, kind of moment. Give me that stew. I'm going to die. I got to have it. Jacob said, what will you give me? What will you trade me for some of this stew? Esau says, what do you want? And he says, Give to me your birthright. Now, soup for birthright is not a good trade if you're Esau. It's not a good deal. But he quickly said, what is it to me? I'm going to die. I need to eat this food. And so he quickly traded his birthright for some soup. What this shows us is that Esau was a man who cared more about the current moment than he did about the future. He cared more about the physical realm, his bodily appetites, than the spiritual realm. He cared more about his flesh or the things of the flesh than he did about the things of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he's called a sexually immoral and unholy person. In other words, what you see right there in that little moment of his life, you're seeing the root of his heart. He's more flesh than spirit. He's more physical than spiritual. He's more present than future. And that root that you're seeing was manifested in his life through sexual immorality and unholiness. These Hebrew Christians, they needed to make sure that they were unlike Esau. They needed to be sure as they looked at friends and family members who were not in Christ and so therefore accepted by their culture and society. Remember in chapter 10, there were, there were some of these people that were going through even financial persecution because they were Christians. 
He's now saying to them, look, you have to make sure that you're unlike Esau, who was about the now and about the flesh and about bodily appetites more than he was about the future and about the things of the spirit and about the spiritual part of who he was, his true and inner man. This is important for us. This is what God is saying to us. He's trying to train us so that we will become like this. Could it be that some of the struggles and trials that we've endured in our lives are actually, sometimes we're like, oh, why, God? Why have you done this? Why have you allowed this into my life? There's so little that we know. I imagine sometimes through some of the trials that have been in my life or in the lives of people that I've known, I've wondered at times, God, what sin have you just rescued me from? What thing had life been prosperous and without difficulty? What thing would I have entered into that through this trial that has thrown me onto my knees, you have preserved and kept me from? It is far better for me to go through this with you than it would have been for me to enter into whatever it might have been. I don't know that that's always the case, that every trial is connected to some sin that he's trying to rescue me from. But here he's telling us, look, there is that spirit of Esau that we must watch out for. This is a thing that God is producing, doing in us. He's trying to give us a better vision than that man Esau. All right, third question. I told you there were four. Third question, this one is a real brief answer as far as I'm concerned. The third question would be, how do I know that God's training works? You know, if God, that's what he's doing, he's training me through suffering and trials, and this is what he wants to produce, how do I know that it will actually work? Well, you have to remember the way that they would read these letters initially. It wasn't like we're doing today where they just immediately get started with a verse-by-verse, slower-paced Bible study over months to pour through a scripture. When they first got the letter, they just unroll it and they'd read the whole thing. That would be the deal. And so they had already, by the point that they get to this, they'd already thought about the new covenant versus the old covenant. So if you missed all of that as we went through chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, then you should go back and listen to those teachings. But here he's going to recap what he said by talking about the old versus the new covenant. So let's read it together. How do I know God's training works? Well, verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. That's how the old covenant was received, the 10 commandments. It was on a mountaintop, a fire, darkness, gloom, storm, and the sound of a trumpet, verse 19, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given on that day of Mount Sinai when the law was given. The order was this, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight when the the law was given, when the Ten Commandments were given, that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, verse 22, so we're, we're not old covenant people, we're new covenant people. We didn't go to Mount Sinai, where did we go? He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering." and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
here in this paragraph, notice what he does in these two paragraphs. He just quickly recaps the Old and New Covenant and compares and contrasts them both. I made a little chart for you so that we could see these contrasts, if we could put it up on the screen right now. In the Old Covenant, it's physical, verse 18, that it may be touched. The New Covenant is immaterial or spiritual, the heavenly Jerusalem. The Old Covenant was fearful when they received it. There was darkness and gloom and a tempest. The New Covenant was celebratory, angels and festal gathering. The Old Covenant was a message of law, but the New Covenant is a message of grace. It perfects and makes righteous uh, the spirits of those who believe in it. The Old Covenant was exclusive. If even a beast touches the mountain, it says. In other words, Moses was the one that went up to the mountaintop to receive the Old Covenant, but the New Covenant is inclusive to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, the firstborn being Jesus, we, the assembly, who are there because of his blood. He's the one who gets us in there. Moses was the mediator of the old. Jesus, verse 24, is the mediator of the new covenant. And in the old covenant, like Abel, who brought a sacrifice of an animal, the blood of an animal, They brought animal blood, but in the new covenant, it was the blood of Jesus, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. So again, the question was real simple. How do I know that God's training can work in my life? Real simple in the author's mind, because if you're a Christian, you're under the new covenant. That means that his spirit is working inside of you. He is changing you and transforming you from the inside out as you walk with him. All right, let's close with our fourth and final question. Why should I receive? Or maybe why should I listen to? Why should I adhere? Why should I come under God's training? Well, notice in verse 25, he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, that that first generation who received the law on Mount Sinai, he says, if they did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. I don't know if you remember how this whole book, the book of Hebrews, began, but it began with the author in chapter one referring to the times past. He said, in times past, God spoke to us through prophets and in various ways. In various times. You see, in in times past, God communicated. Like from Mount Sinai, he communicated. But then he says, but now God has spoken to us by his son. You see, in the past, it was a serious thing for God to have spoken to them, and they were held accountable for the message that they had received. But now we have the best message and the best messenger that there ever was. The prophets were great, but Jesus, who was God the Son, became the Son of God, God the Son in human flesh for us. He then lived, suffered, and died for you and me, shedding his blood to purchase us for himself. He substituted himself there for us upon the cross. And then he rose from the grave. In the author's mind, this is the greatest message and the greatest messenger who's ever been. Why should I submit myself to the training of God? Because I have the best message that ever was. I have the best savior that's ever been. And who am I to ignore 
and disrespect this great revelation that I've received. The cross was costly, and I want to love God by obeying him because he's spoken to me in these last days. But he goes on to say in verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, you know, when they received the law, but now he is promised, and this comes from the prophet Haggai, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is his way of saying that in God's new creation that he's establishing and building right now and will one day bring us into, he will have to shake the first creation and only the most important things from the first will endure to the second. So I want you, when you go home today, I want you to walk around your house. I want you to look at your flat screen TV and I want you to just look at it and say, that will be shaken. I want you to look at your car that you get in in the parking lot and say, this is in the category of things that will be shaken. I want you to think about your physical pains and infirmities and say, even of that, this thing will be shaken and just a seed from it will go into the new creation that God has established. You see, all around us in this first creation are things that will be shaken so that God's unshakable kingdom can be revealed. Listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 11 and 13. He said, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Why should I endure and come under God's training? Because I'm part of his unshakable kingdom. Why would I live my life about and prioritize towards the things that are shakable when I could point myself towards the things of the kingdom of God? Finally, let's look at verse 28 and 29 as we close the chapter. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is his way of saying, look, God, he's your father, and because he's your father, he is jealous for you. You say, Nate, I don't see the word jealous in that passage at all. Well, the first time that the Bible mentions God as a consuming fire, the next line says, comma, a jealous God. You see, this is the author's way of saying, look, come under God's fathering role in your life as he's training you because he is jealous for you. He wants to consume away the flesh, the dross, the sin that has attached itself to you and bring you into the version of yourself that he has envisioned for you. So why would I come under God's training? Because he's worthy. He deserves my worship. He deserves my reverence and my awe. I was talking about this on Friday night at our night of worship, but in the New Testament mentality, worship is not primarily singing to God. 
It is partly that, and there are a few places in the New Testament that talk about it in that way. But for the most part, in the New Testament, worship of God is communicated as the service of God. That everything I do, whatever I eat, whatever I drink, wherever I go, that I do it all for the glory of God. You know, I want to, I want to treat people in my life in the way that God would approve of. I want to conduct my career and business in the way that would honor the Lord. I want to bring up a family in the way that God would approve of and desire. In a sense, in the New Testament economy, because we've shifted from the Old Testament, which was a come and see religion, to the New Testament, which is a go and tell experience, in a sense, we are now in a place where we say, all of my life is to be lived as an offering of worship to God, honoring and adoring and serving him. And I will sing to him as an evidence of what my whole life strives and aims to be. I'm not gonna live my life in an unworshipful way where I never even think of God and worse, rebel against him and then sing songs to him. No, my songs are going to be kind of that final thing where my life is a life of worship and so my songs demonstrate what's actually happening throughout and in my life. So the author is pleading with his audience, allow yourself to come other, under the fathering hand of God as he wraps up his letter. Now I realize I'm kind of making it sound like there's no Hebrews chapter 13, like the whole book is over with at this point, you know, like the argument is finished. And in a sense it is, Chapter 13 is like, if, you, if you've ever bought a DVD and you've gotten one with the bonus features, that's what chapter 13 is. It's like his whole argument is finished and now he's got a beautiful list of exhortations that he wants to, by the power of the Spirit, communicate to the church. And so that's what we'll see in the next two weeks. But what I want to do now is I want to invite the worship team up to close us in a song, but I want to lead you in a prayer of acceptance of God's fathering hand on your life. To allow even the struggle to be used by him. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.